When life is difficult, Samaritans are here. Day or night, 365 days a year. You can call them for free on 116 123. Email them at joe at or visit Whatever you're facing, the Samaritans are here to listen. Hi there, this is Nick from the Beer Podcast. This is a quick trigger warning. The following podcast contains information regarding suicide, substance abuse and alcohol abuse. If you are affected by any of these things, please reach out to the relevant services for the help that you deserve. Thank you. Welcome to the Beer Podcast. My name's Nick Minns. Um, second episode now on uh, on season four. Lucky enough to be joined uh, by Luke Scott from We Go Again on Instagram. I uh, say so we've been trying to plan this one for a while, but it's uh, things have gone away. So luckily we're here. We're, we're in person now. So Luke, thanks for joining us today. Nick, thank you for having me on. Like I say, I know it's been a while in the making, but uh, I'm glad we finally finally got it together. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so really we'll just we'll we'll get straight into it um if you just want to explain a little bit about your journey through mental health and then we'll we'll talk a little bit as well about um we go again as we as we get going yeah absolutely well we go again is sort of a product of my mental health journey so it makes sense to start right back at the beginning um childhood for me was it was pretty good i, I had quite a decent childhood um the first bit i knew about grief and loss was um my grandfather had passed away four years before I was born, so I was I was, I was aware of it very early on. And then, um, at seven years old, I was around at my best friend's house, um, took down the old brick barbecues, and the next day his dad passed away. And I remember laying in bed. So what I now know is a bit of anxiety. Um, I was worried in case sort of my dad had passed away, which I know sounds selfish for me to say that to sort of use use my friend's grief, but it it sort of clipped as like I said to what I know now as anxiety and I was constantly worried about my, my own dad um, and I supported my friend through that as best I could at seven years old um, didn't really know what to what to do what to say but we, we remained close he's still one of my best friends to this day um, and then sort of eight months after his father passed away my other grandfather passed away so I was only eight years old so again I, I was grief stricken um, really upset naturally for for an eight-year-old to go through through that sort of trauma at, at that age. And from then, sort of my best friend who, who's dad passed away, he then supported me through the similar process. And, and just being there, like I say, was only eight years old and just having conversations about how we felt, how we missed them and stuff. And it, it really worked. But then other than that, childhood was really good. Um, I had a really, really decent childhood, fairly popular at school, uh, fortunate enough, you know, not, not to be on the receiving end of bullies. Um, fortunate enough to know the rights and wrongs to not be a bully. School was, as much as I hated it, it was great. Um, not many people liked school. A lot of my difficulties started from leaving the army. All the way through school, all I ever wanted to do was be in the army. And I remember from a very early age, probably five or six, um, I used to tell everyone I'm going to be in the army, probably because I enjoyed playing with action men's as a kid so much. Um, it's all I ever wanted to do. So left school, the day after I left school, I went 
to the Army Careers Office to get my application forms. Because I was sort of only 16 at the time, I needed my parents' signature to, to get in, and my mum refused to sign it, so I asked my dad, um, and he sort of persuaded my mum to, to sign these papers because it wasn't something that I'd ever stopped talking about. Like I say, that's all I ever wanted to do. I think probably through teenage years, I went through that phase of, I want to be a professional footballer or a professional sportsman. But it was very apparent that my skills were um, up to scratch, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I said, the, the Army was, was all I ever really wanted to do. So I did that. So I joined, uh, I went away at 17 and I loved it. Loved every minute of it. I didn't have a backup plan. I planned my full life within the Army. But within 12 months, I, I was medically discharged due to a knee injury. And it just threw a spanner in the works, really, because I was on the train. Um, this was in, I, I joined in the January 2009, and in December 2009, I was on a train back home for good. And there was some other sort of ex squaddies then that had, had left by their own choice that were on the train. Well, I'm going to do this in civil life, I'm going to do that. And I just thought, all I ever wanted to do was be in the army. I don't know what I'm going to do. And it got me on a bit of a path of sort of, between jobs um, in February 2010, found out my girlfriend at the time was pregnant. And like I say, I was 18, she was only 17. And it was really tough. I thought, is this the right time? Um, you know, sort of, I'm, I'm man enough to, to take the responsibility of, of becoming a parent. I've, I've done what needed to be done to, to get us in this situation. I'll be man enough and, and step up. And that ended up, we ended up having an ectopic pregnancy. So, our lives just crashed and we were both broken, absolutely um, in bits. We we knew we was too young. Well, we not too young. Other people thought we was too young. We knew we was maybe weren't ready, but we'd give it the best chance um, we could. So, yeah, that naturally caused more stress, more worry, more anxiety. I was drinking a lot. I never really drank because, like I say, all I wanted to do was join the army, so I was always focused on my fitness, my goals, what, what I needed to do. I, I wouldn't really, plus I want I want of legal age to drink. So just, just make that clear. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was skipping from job to job, using, abusing alcohol sort of as a coping mechanism to try and drown out my pain of the ectopic pregnancy. Because of, because of what had happened and, and that incident, the relationship became a bit rocky. We were on and off. Um, but 11 months sort of after the, no, 12 months after the ectopic, we actually gave birth to uh, a healthy baby boy, which was fantastic. So although the relationship was on and off, we remained close. We knew that we were kind of meant for each other. Uh, and we just kept getting drawn back together like magnets, um, which was fantastic. But when we were good, we were, we were fantastic. But when the relationship was bad, it was awful. Like we were the worst people on, on earth to each other. Um, and yeah, we, again, I was only 19 when, when my son was born, so still very, very young. And a lot of people said, oh, you're too young, ruining your life. And actually, uh, he's, he's 11 years old now and he's fantastic and he's, he's actually been our saviour. And it was good, you know, parent, being a parent for no matter how old you are, I think becoming a parent for the first time is fantastic. Um, so much to learn about yourself, about other people, about the responsibilities. And just sort of in the summer of 
2011, we found out she was pregnant again. Um, so I was excited. Again, the relationship probably wasn't in the best place it could be. We're still on and off. Our our focus then became on obviously our child. To whatever we, decision we make as a relationship as a couple has to be for this child, and that's that's what we always did. So we always remained close. Like I so said, we got pregnant again in the summer 2011, and in January or well New Year's Eve 2011, she was rushed into hospital because her waters broke. On the 3rd of January, um, she gave birth and unfortunately, baby was born sleeping. So again, our world was flipped upside down, didn't really know how to deal with that kind of grief. Um, sort of like I explained earlier, I've, I've been aware of grief and loss from an early age, but when it's your own child, um, really tough, didn't, didn't know what to do, probably shut ourselves off that threw even more spanners in the works in terms of the relationship and our our eldest um like I say was 11 months old he became our savior without even knowing and again everything that we did was was for him um there was obviously grief because we should be should be looking at two children looking after two children and what would they have been like together and i think even to this day we still have thoughts of what if and um how different life would be and eventually the relationship got back together we stayed together um it was fantastic but in the summer of 2012 when i was at one of many jobs the police turned up to my work sort of unannounced i didn't know anything about it and i i didn't i was working on the docks up, up at um head and road so th there's loads of places that could have been going and they pulled up at our warehouse said oh is it luke scott I said yeah um, he said, oh, we need to have a word with you. We need to question you down the station. I said, oh, okay, what's it about? And they said, oh, we'll, we'll tell you down the station. And I got there and I'd been, it turns out I'd been falsely accused of a serious sexual assault that could have seen me go to prison for five years. Um, so the, the accusation was rape and I was absolutely in shock. Um, I didn't know where this had come from. They wouldn't tell me who had said it. And so I had all that to deal with on top of the grief. I probably hadn't grieved or processed the loss of the um, ectopic pregnancy at the time. So I we were still going through all of that process as well, um, trying to be the best dad I could for our um, baby boy that was, was still here and was healthy, working as many jobs as I could to bring in as much money as I could so that everything was all right. And then, like I say, you go through... Uh, stillbirth and your life's thrown into pieces but then on top of that you get falsely accused of, of such a serious sexual assault that even some of your friends start questioning you know did you do it and so I, I lost a couple of friendships through that and which I, I, I really didn't need at that time I needed them to support me through everything um, and I, I've rebuilt those friendships but it took a lot of time and like I said, this was 10 years ago now and I'm, I'm still sort of rekindling stuff from sort of the past. And so I started going through the court process and the case was dropped to, to my relief. Um, I knew I hadn't done anything. Out of the blue, the, the, court was, the court case was dropped and I just thought, how can somebody be so low to 
accuse someone of such a serious as like sexual assault when there is people out there that are actually doing it and almost getting away with it because the victim doesn't want to say anything. And I think should there be punishments against the, the people that are falsely accused? I don't know. It, without getting political, you know, I've got yeah, my own yeah. views on that. Um, but that was a massive, massive blow to me mentally. And although on the outside, I, I was telling everyone, yeah, I was fine. I was dealing with it. I was down the pub having a laugh and a joke every weekend. Um, nobody could say any different. And then sort of, I, I managed to get through that somehow. I don't know how. Um, I've never really processed it. And that probably added to the decline of my mental health, all, all of those things combined. And I'd never, never acknowledged it, never sort of, never wanted to accept it, I suppose. Um, the only grief I had accepted, like I say, was, was them as a child because that's what I knew. And I, I thought that that's how life was, you know, born. At some point, you're going to die. Um, I was aware of that. Um, I didn't expect those, the extra grief to happen, the ectopic, the um, stillbirth, the false accusations. And sort of after that, I mean, my, my girlfriend was very supportive through it. Um, sort of, she knew that I wouldn't, I wasn't that type of person. And a lot of my friends did, to be fair. My family did. I, I did have a lot of support. So although I lost a little bit of support, I still had a hell of a lot more support than a lot of people do. And sort of, I'd, again, still skipping from top, job to job at this point, using alcohol, probably abusing it. But in my sense at the time, I was, I was using it to try and cope. And I then finally landed a job in something that I really wanted to do. And I, planned, I then planned a career in it. I've become a bus driver and it's nothing special. Um, but I just love driving. I love meeting new people. And... Just, just driving buses about and, and just having a chat with the, the public. And it's sort of, like I say, I'd then planned a career in it. So I'd sort of found my happy place, still using alcohol from time to time, but that had cut down massively because of the, the nature of the job, random drug and alcohol tests. Um, and then it sort of come to a head again. Um, Christmas Day, 2017, Done the usual family stuff, Christmas Eve, go to the pub, have a few beers, go back home, took the kids in bed, and I'd go back out to the pub after the kids were in bed, all the presents were sorted, and then I, I dabbled a little bit in drugs. I won't say I was a, a drug user or a drug, regular drug taker or buyer, but every now and again after I'd had a few beers, I'd, I'd have a little bit of someone else's drugs. And this particular night, Christmas Eve 2017, I've decided that I'd had enough of life and I didn't want to live anymore because I'd be waking up on Christmas morning to, I sound selfish and I've, I've, I've missed a bit, but um, in 2017, me and my, my partner had another healthy baby, but all the way through that pregnancy, I was anxious. I was worried, what if it's the same as last time? What if it's another stillbirth? What if it's a miscarriage? So it caused a lot of anxiety for both of us. And this would have been my daughter's first Christmas which is why it's it's important that I had to mention that. Um, although I had two beautiful children at home, my life wasn't complete because of what I should be waking up to, whether you count the ectopic, would we have still had three children? I'm not sure. The stillborn definitely um, is a lot harder to process because you know, it was fully formed. 
um, spitting image of, of his older brother, I was thinking, I'm going to wake up on Christmas morning and I'm not going to be happy. Um, my life's over. I, I went to Cumber Bridge, um, early hours. I put an extra jacket on, filled my pockets with stones, um, took some beers out the fridge, and I had to walk up to the, the bridge, planned everything that I was going to do. Um, and, yeah, the, the armed police were called to the Humber Bridge Christmas Day, um, shut the bridge off for a few hours. And I remember one of them saying, we've got armed police with lasers traced on you. I said, that's fine, pull the trigger because I don't want to be here. Um, thankfully, now, and not only reflecting now, I've reflected a few times, they didn't, and I was given another chance. They took me into my random house where this sort of did a questionnaire, waited till I sober up, did this questionnaire. One question they asked me was, are you okay to leave? And I said, yes, I'm fine. So bearing in mind, I've just been taken off the Humber Bridge because I wanted to end my life. I told them that I was fine. Um, they let me go, and I thought, that's great. I've got another chance to sort of do what I wanted to do. I still don't want to be here. I don't want to be alive. I, I know that I, want, I knew that I wanted to be dead. I did not want to be alive. And I know a lot of people, when they say about suicide, they don't want to end the life. They just want the pain to end. Yeah. I, I actually wanted to end my life, and I suppose a lot of it comes down to I've never been afraid of dying, which is... Part of the reason I joined the army so that I could go and potentially save my country. And I knew the risks involved with that. And I knew there was a potential um, that I could die in combat. Thankfully, again, that didn't happen. Uh, looking back now. And unfortunately, when I left Miranda House, because of some things that had been said whilst on the Humber Bridge, I had to go to the police station and there. They spent, I spent the day in Christmas Day, my daughter's first Christmas, in a police cell because of some things I'd said. Um, potentially looking at getting a, a crime caution or a warning or a, potentially even a short prison sentence. And I remember thinking, is this my life? This As soon as I get out of here, I'm, I know that I'm going to try it again. Um, and the, the only good thing about being in the police station that day was they gave me two microwave meals um lasagna not very good christmas dinner the beef was green it was terrible um i was on police cell watch so because of what i tried to do there had to be two police officers watching everything that i did even going to the toilet sleeping in my room or in my cell sorry i make it sound glorious by saying room um but there was two people watching me wherever i did whatever i did whatever i said was recorded and i remember thinking I still want to die, but maybe there's another option. Maybe I can try and change something. I, I'll cut down on the alcohol. So I did. Um, I lasted till New Year, just into New Year, actually, because, like I said, 3rd of January is always tough. So I purposely not drank from Christmas Day when I left the police station to, I think it was the 5th of January 2018, which was a big achievement for me. I mean, it's I know it doesn't seem much, and something just clicked where I just needed to have a drink again. I was I was probably overstressed, and I thought I'd calmed those emotions down from Christmas. Um, I no longer I no longer wanted to live, but I know I st I mean I still didn't want to live, but I no longer wanted to end my life immediately. I thought that I there was more I could offer. And then 2018 was okay, fairly standard 
sort of up and down emotions, natural things. Um, Christmases, birthdays are always tough. Kids starting school, always tough. It's always a reminder of what could be, what should be. Um, how would it be? And then in November 2018, me and my, my partner attended a charity event. Um, it was fantastic. I planned everything down to a T, apart from the events of this charity, because it wasn't wasn't our charity. We, we were just guests. I'd planned, again, to take my own life. This was 2nd of November 2018. Planned it down to a T. I knew the party was going to end at about midnight. I knew I'd probably carry on having a few drinks after that. I knew then that my wife would go to sleep because we were staying at the hotel. And I knew that then was my chance. And I did. I, I did it again. Went went back to the same place. This time I, I got chatting to um, one of the guys on the, the Humber Bridge board, the tall people. And he was he was talking away to me. I was probably being drunk and disorderly to these other all the cars that were passing and having a bit of a joke, trying to charge them a bit too much for the, the bridge toll and stuff, just just in a drunkly bit of banter sort of fashion, not in a, an aggressive um out of order sort of fashion. But thankfully he what I didn't know, they've got a um or they must have uh, an emergency button underneath the till or the toll in within the booth. And the police come again. This was probably after about, I want to say about an hour of me talking to him, but it was probably a lot, lot less than that. Um, I sort of told him my intentions. He, thankfully, kept me calm. Um, and, yeah, from there, I was back into Miranda House. I thought, I know how this process goes. I say I'm fine. I leave. And then I go and try again. And I'm very, very thankful that, this time they kept me in. I said, yeah, they went through the same questionnaire, asked me the same question, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. And they said, well, Mr. Scott, you was here just 11 months ago, sort of under the same situation. Um, either you come in voluntarily and we do some assessments or you'll be sectioned. And I thought, right, well, if I do it voluntarily, I can sort of leave when I want. And I ended up staying in there for six days, um, got a diagnosis of severe depression and anxiety. And I felt a little bit of relief when I got that because, I, 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 again, I had to explain my story and sort of where I was. I'm still in a very low place. The only difference was between Christmas Day 2017 when I was up there, I pictured everybody's life, everybody's life around me, better off without me in it, including my children. And I know that sounds selfish. But the only difference was I could still picture everyone's life better off without me, except for my children this time, which was probably a huge saviour and what kept me kept me back as opposed to sort of being dragged off the bridge by the police. This time it wasn't armed police on the, um, it was the early morning, so it was the 3rd of November. It wasn't armed police, it was just normal police officers come and took me. And like I said, stayed in Miranda House, got the, the diagnosis and I was, I was so relieved that there was a reason that I felt the way I did and that it was normal. Not so much normal, because I'd, I'd hate for anybody to go through what I've been through. But it they give me hope a little bit. And although I was staying in there and I was flitting through, do I want to die, do I want to live? Um, a lot of it, a lot of the time, I, I sort of, the answer was, I do want to die, but I, I don't know. There's got to be more to life, aren't there? Than any, I thought I'd tried everything. When actually I'd only really tried alcohol and the occasional drug use, 
um, and just running away from my problems. So I decided upon leaving Miranda House, I was going to try and stay alcohol free um, just to get through Christmas and, and the new year. And it worked. As soon as I left Miranda House, I was sort of referred to my community mental health team and given a care coordinator. And she was really helpful. I spoke to her weekly, said how I was feeling. Obviously, there was natural progression and some some days were good, some days were bad. Um, and then that dropped to fortnightly and she signposted me to loads of different sort of avenues where I could gain support and and sort of try out to, to better my mental health. And, and one of them was Andy's Man Club. I went there and I still go there. And I'm, I'll be forever grateful for the team at Miranda House. And although I was probably a bit of a pain to them um, because of the way I was feeling, I now understand that they see that a lot. Um, that's quite quite regular that they see that type of emotion, those types of actions. And because of my mental health dipping and, and declining, I and because of the severity of it, the DVLA then took my license off me. So I lost my job as a bus driver. They tried to find alternative sort of roles I could do where I didn't need a license, whether that be fueling on the pumps or washing the buses or things. They couldn't find anything, so I then lost my job, which naturally would have been, uh, I suppose, another kick in the teeth for a lot of people. You've lost something else that you planned a career in. And I thought, I remember thinking, I've been here before. I can do this again. Um, I can get through it. Um, I didn't know how, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I started volunteering at various places, and actually losing my job. Was, was a huge benefit because it, it allowed me more time to focus on myself and my recovery um, that's still ongoing. Um, I know this was three and a half, nearly four years ago now, but I'll always consider my, my recovery to be ongoing because I do have up days, I have down days. And I remember thinking to myself, what do I like doing? Where can I go? What can I do? And I, I thought of one thing, every single thing that I've said in, no, I'd said one thing in every single interview from sort of being a pot washer at, when I was still in school to earn some pocket money to joining the army to every single job I'd had since was I like meeting new people and I like helping them. So from there, I, um, I was volunteering at a, a coaching club. Um, I, I was attending a boxing club and I, I got into a little bit of the coaching. I was helping out. And I'd sold my car at this point to pay for um, sort of pay for household bills. So I didn't have a car, I was getting the bus to the, the gym. And you'll know it is on the road flyover as I was leaving Vulcan Boxing Gym. I was coming over the flyover and I, I thought to myself, why do I do this to myself? I'm aching like mad. I'm in pain. I'm not real good at it, but we go again tomorrow. I was like, okay, right, go again. So I started saying it to myself in the gym when, when the session was getting tough. I was like, right, we'll go again. And then I started verbalising it. I was saying it to other people. Like, right, come on, we don't give up. We'll go again. We've still got 30 seconds left. Kept on saying it. And I thought, there's something in there. So that's where We Go Again was born. I thought, I'm going to use my lived experience of ill mental health, suicidal ideation, grief, bereavement, um, and suicidal actions, actually, so that I can try and prevent people other people feeling that same way that I did. Um, and now 
like I say, three and a half years on, well, probably 1,365 days or something, two total alcohol and drug-free, um, living a great life. And, and like I say, the founder of what I consider a fantastic organisation in terms of mental health support. That's a brief overview, Nick. I can breathe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first thing I want to say, mate, is thank you so much for sharing all that. As I say, it's, you know, you, you can sometimes see that, you know, certain things are difficult to talk about, but it, it, it's just quite inspiring listening to you kind of being so open about it. So thanks for, for kind of opening with all that. Um, you know, I'm, I understand the kind of, grief that goes on with regards to um losing a child i mean not obviously like stillbirth but um my wife when was uh, pregnant with our fourth at where uh, 16 weeks she um had a bleed and we ended up having a miscarriage found out that the baby had probably been passed away since about 11 weeks so it was you know that that grief is really difficult to um, to kind of comprehend, like you say, it's it, you're kind of used to the, you know, like losing grandparents and things. They're not they're not easy, but it kind of feels like it's uh, the way I used to normalize it. Is it's an acceptable thing to to because you know that the fact that they've had a life, they've lived it, and you know they're maybe coming to the end of their 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 track and everything, but when it's kind of like your own children, especially when they, you know, they're young and they haven't, they haven't actually had that time and it just feels so unfair. Um, do you know that the, the, the thing I kind of kept picking up on what you, when you were talking is that you kind of kept saying, oh, I know it's a bit selfish of me, but I totally understand those, those feelings of, I mean, when you said about, um, you know, you you kind of felt like you know, if I stay if 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 I, I kill myself, my family's going to be better off without me and everything. And you said I know that sounds selfish, but I've I've had that feeling of do you know what, if I was to maybe my family would be better off without me if I just walked away from them, they'd probably all just get on a lot better and you know with their lives and they wouldn't have to deal with all of my my stuff that I'm going through. So I, I you know it kind of says a lot about you as a person as well. That actually yeah. um, seeing that as a um, that you being selfish, if you like thinking of yeah, but you it was you really thinking of the of the other people. Yeah, that's it. And I think sort of now I do what I do um, with We Go Again. I also went full time for the NHS in mental health peer support. So using that lived experience, I know that it sounds selfish. But I know other people that say to me, oh, it's so selfish if you do this. No, it's not, because I I pictured, I visioned everybody's life better off. I could see the smiles. I could see, okay, I knew that I thought they'd be upset for a week or so. I now know totally different. And it's only because I know that, because I've been through it, is that I'm able to share and inspire that, that hope in others that actually you don't. It, it, it's totally, it's selfless what you're doing because you're thinking of other people in, in that situation, but actually the pain only spreads further. And I'm only able to say that now, and probably similar to you, Nick, is I can say that now. I know that it spreads further because I'm still here to live it. Yeah. If I had done that, I know that my my family would have been struggling still to this day. 
And I, I think one thing I, I should add, all of that happened before I was 21. Sort of the, the incidents, the, the rape, the, um, the stillbirth, all of that happened before I was 21. I didn't really start processing it until I was 26, 27, which is when I stopped drinking. Um, so I, I bottled it up for so long. And in fact, I don't know if you've seen the image. There's a picture of me and me and my wife now. We've been together 13 years um, on and off. Uh, like I say, there's a picture of me and my wife before this charity event looking all happy. You won't be able to tell. Um, and if you have a look through my social media, my LinkedIn, it's on there somewhere. Um, and it, the importance of it is a smile can cover anything. And, and it did for so long. Um, a smile and a little bit of alcohol. Yeah, it's, it's, I suppose that, you know, like you say, like when you when you were saying about, you know, the alcohol and stuff, it, it definitely seemed like it was almost like a coping mechanism most of the time, was it? But it's quite um common i think to see that that's what people generally kind of use like substances or or alcohol as a kind of almost like a distraction to to kind of take it more take them away from what's actually going on yeah and the, the problem was um i think we're in a the british culture the british society is you're a male you're gonna go have a drink on a pub on a weekend i thought yeah that's fine but then it becomes a problem when you're then trying to force your friends to come out just so that you've got company in the pub. And it's even more of a problem when you're telling other people that you're meeting somebody in the pub, but you're not. Um, there was always a good chance that I'd meet someone in the pub because, like I said, I was fairly popular at school. And I know a lot of people in the area. I could go into a pub and see somebody that I learned, stand and have a chat with for an hour or two, sink a couple of pints. But then it, it's even worse when you know full well you, you don't want to meet anybody in the pub. You just want to go to the pub to get drunk on your own, just think about your thoughts, or just to drown them out. But then you wake up in the morning, they're still there, and you've 100 quid less in your bank. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. No. I don't want to preach and tell everyone to stop drinking because that's the answer. But if you if you find that you're having a problem with drink, you're waking up and your problems with your mental health are still there, try reaching out to somebody, whether that be myself or yourself, Nick, or anybody. There's lots and lots of support out there. And for me, there's no competition within mental health. So if I can't help you, I'll, I'll certainly try and help you find somebody that can. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of, the, one of the, uh, the amazing things that I, I started to notice about, if you like, the mental health as a community, is that people are so helpful in saying, look, you know, lending an ear to listen, but then saying, do you know who you're probably best talking to is this or, you know, yeah. let me signpost you to this service or to this service. And that way people are just getting this, I don't, it just really kind of, I suppose it just thing is this uh, community and it's real tight knit. It's, it's really close, but I think it's because everybody kind of shares those experiences and just able to kind of think of the, um, I suppose the, the, the most adequate way of them getting the help that they need quick, really. And I think it comes back to being selfless. Not, whatever I do, it, it goes back into other people or goes back into the community. Um, just because I run a mental health organisation doesn't just mean I'm going to charge you the earth and not give you anything. Don't work like that because I want you to get help, whether that's with me or with somebody else. Yeah, that's it. It's brilliant. So we're coming up. Well, we've got two and a half minutes left on the on the meet on the um on the podcast. So 
I'm going to push you for, if you had to say one little bit of advice to anybody who's listening, I always finish podcasts like this. So one little nugget of advice that you would say to anybody who reaches out or might be listening now, who's having those kind of thoughts, what would be your one nugget of advice? There is help out there. Rock bottom will teach you more than mountain tops will. Um, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one single step. Don't give up. There is plenty of opportunity ahead of you. We go again, always. Oh, wow, mate. Denny's got a t-shirt. Make sure. They all, I said, do, do, you, do you have your, all, all your merch to sell as well? Yeah, so all my, all my products are available on, on my website, www.wegoagainwga.com. Um, I initially started the, the products because I started a YouTube channel. So I started sharing my story on YouTube, got a few comments saying, oh, this video really helped me, um, really inspired. And I thought I want to be more directly involved. So I created some products just to basically just to raise awareness of the YouTube channel of what I was doing. And then I thought, I want to be more directly involved. I want to be more person-centered. How can I do it? So I set up set up as a peer support business or organization. I don't like the, the term business um, in mental health, but I set up as an organization so that I could be personally involved. I can still do my YouTube stuff. Although I've shut that one down. Um, it was we go again, WGA. I've shut that down. I've recently restarted a new one. Um, just because I've got another business outside of um, my mental health one, which I promote, and I do this new channel. It's called This Is Me, Luke Scott, um, and I, I just share like little bits of my thoughts. It's a bit like a vlog uh, and a virtual diary, really. Yeah, so Luke, thanks so much for coming on today. I say it's been an absolute. Um, it does say it's just been a pleasure. So glad that we finally managed to get this um, this kind of done after so long. Like we did say before we got cut off. Um, yeah, definitely. I think a live QA session would be really like a real, a real good thing to do. Yeah, I, I'm always up for a live QA. Um, let's get it on Instagram. Thank you, Nick, for having me on. Um, because it's called the Beard Podcast, I purposely didn't share for about a week. So um, <laughs> I think yours is a little bit better though. <laughs> and well, to be honest with you, I did I, I went through a phase of I shaved it right back, but I just I said to my wife, I said, oh, I just feel like something's missing and, you know, I feel like I really need that that beard back and I missed it once I got rid of it. So I thought, right, time to start growing it. So, yeah, yeah well, who knows? I might be like mailing sooner or later, but yeah, the, the longer the better. <laughs> yeah, back in 2018 when I first started using Andy's Man Club, just before Christmas, started using, um, going every week. And I, the club massively helped me, so I decided that I was going to do I, and my beard was real long and I, I used to have real long hair. Um, like still faded on the side, but like long on the top. And I decided I was going to shave it all off for charity on the one year anniversary that I attended Andy's Man Club. So I did. Shaved it all off, dyed my hair blonde a little bit before for the few weeks and then shaved it off, raised a, a good bit of money. It's never, ever grown back the same since and I've gutted. <laughs> it's, the only, it's the only thing once you cut it. I mean, this has taken a while to get like this. It's took, I'll probably say about about three months to get to this length. But I've had to go through the, when it's getting like real straggly and wiry and then having to, to kind of comb it and then not get too frustrated with it looking a bit of a mess. But once it kind of gets by a certain length, it tends to start growing outwards. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy I've got there with it now. So uh, 
That's all right. Um, yeah, thank, Nick, thanks again for having me on. Um, I'm happy to do this again another time. Let's see what developments come up. Uh, if you don't already know, um, my all my social media channels are We Go Again WGA. Like I said earlier, website www.wegoagainwga.com. Some merchandise on there. There's not a great range of products on there, but it's only for awareness only. So. Brilliant. That's it. Thanks so much, Luke. Same, just, just brilliant. Um, and for everyone else, catch you on the next podcast. <laughs>